Welcome to another episode of Berean's Podcast. Each week, we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the Scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real-life change and that the power of the Gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those gathered in Lakeville and in our sanctuary service. Invite all of you, if you would, to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, continuing this morning in our uh, series called Victorious as we look at the uh, book of Revelation. I remind you the goal of this is not to predict the end, it's to make sure you persevere to the end. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's to encourage you to persevere in tribulation. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes life is hard, right? And it's hard to persevere and endure sometimes. And the, the book of Revelation is to remind you that, Christian, you daily have victory. Regardless of your circumstances, you daily have victory in Jesus Christ. And that encourages us uh, to keep going. Uh, we're taking kind of an overview approach to this book, uh, which I think you tend to get in trouble with the book of Revelation when you press the details. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at a section that goes together, uh, chapters 2 and 3, uh, which are uh, letters written to seven churches. Now, just real quickly, if you're one of those that really likes to go deeper, you love more detail. I believe it was a little over two years ago, uh, we did a series here called Seven, and it was a series looking at these seven churches. Uh, We looked at uh, one church each week in a lot more detail, and so this will be a little more overview, but if you'd like further study, uh, I would encourage you and direct you to that series, uh, which will give you a lot more of the background and things related uh, to these churches. But this morning, uh, let's just look at an overview here that, that... just has some truth for us to really think about and be convicted by today. And so if you are able to stand, would you please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word? We're just going to read the first uh, seven verses here of Revelation uh, chapter 2. It says, "...to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and have tested those that call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. But I have this against you." that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Faith family, pray for me, please. Uh, And let's ask God to to talk to us, to speak to us through His Word, uh, some things we need to hear. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank You that You are the God of truth. Holy Spirit, you're the one that guides us into truth, and so I pray that you would do that uh, today. There are some things that we need to uh, be confronted by in your word, 
And I just pray that we would be here saying, God, speak to me, convict me, uh, conform me into the image of Jesus. So come speak to us now through your word. That's my prayer. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. They screamed at the top of their lungs, but he didn't hear them. They honked their horn to get his attention, but he didn't even move. They tried everything they could to wake him up, but everything they did, he didn't respond. In fact, had the U.S. Coast Guard not gotten there in time, Jerry Whipple may never have been seen again. Jerry was a middle-aged man living in the Bel Air Beach area just outside Tampa. One day he decided he'd go have some fun at the beach, and so he gathered up his supplies and got a pool float and, and a cooler that he filled with his favorite beer, and he went down to the beach alone. Evidently, while he was there, Jerry drank so much that he passed out on his float and started drifting out into the ocean. Several hours later, Jerry just so happened to be discovered by a group that was out boating. They almost didn't stop because from a distance it just kind of looked like debris floating in the ocean. But then they realized, no, there's actually a person there. And so they tried to get his response, but he wouldn't respond. By the time the Coast Guard got there, Get this, he had drifted an entire mile out into the Gulf. They took him to a nearby hospital where he eventually regained consciousness. And when they asked a Coast Guard officer to comment, here's what he said, quote, When we got there, he was alone on the pool raft. He had no idea where he was, what time of day it was, how long he'd been unconscious, or how far offshore he'd drifted. All I can say is this guy got lucky. Because depending upon the ocean tides and the currents, he could have never been seen again. Faith family, will you listen to me this morning? There's a real danger in drifting. A real danger in drifting. Have you ever drifted before? Have you ever experienced that? Maybe you were driving at night and you begin to drift off to sleep. Maybe you were in a, a relationship or a marriage and you could feel your relationship uh, drifting apart. Uh, maybe you were on a diet for like two days and you started drifting from that. Uh, maybe your team was up by a lot of points and you sat there and watched that lead just drift away. Some of you I know will drift off during the sermon sinner. <laughs> Most of us have experienced that drifting. Let me ask you this, have you ever drifted spiritually? Drifted in your relationship with God. Maybe you were a part of a church that drifted away from the truth. Maybe you knew Christians that drifted away from being on mission. Listen to me this morning, there is a real danger in drifting. 
It is why the Bible frequently warns against this. Look at, for instance, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Faith family, say it with me. Lest we drift away. The Bible warns us about drifting. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. In due season we will reap if we do not give up. Proverbs 21, 16. One who wanders or drifts away from good sense or wisdom will rest in the assembly of the dead. Ephesians 4, 14. We are to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about or drifted away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The Bible over and over and over again warns us about drifting. And what we need is a wake-up call that kind of gets our attention so that we don't drift. Kind of a, hey, wake up. You're drifting out there. Like a doctor might say, eat right or else. Or a coach might say, play hard or else. Or a teacher might say, you better get your grades up or else. Look at me, faith family. Sometimes we need Jesus to look at us and say, wake up or else. Wake up or else. That is exactly what Jesus does in these letters to seven churches. It's exactly what he does in chapters two and three. These letters are written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor. Now, there are more than seven churches in this area. Uh, there, there's a, a double meaning here. There are literally seven churches, but the number seven in the book of Revelation, if you remember from week one, represents fullness or completion. And so this is not just to seven churches, it's to every church. It's not just to churches in John's day, it's to churches in every day. And in these letters, Jesus confronts his church. Now you say, wait, wait a minute, I was here last week and you told me that Jesus stands with his church. I, mean, I remember the vision at the end of chapter one. It is this victorious king who stands in the midst of his lampstands. He is with his bride. You're absolutely right. Look at me, faith family. Just because Jesus doesn't forsake the church doesn't mean the church doesn't forsake him. Oh, he is faithful, make no doubt about that. He is standing with his church, but sometimes his church doesn't stand with him. And therefore, when the church begins to drift, he has to wake them up. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, you have abandoned. That is, you have drifted from the love you have at first. There are some things going on in these churches where they've drifted away from where Jesus wants them to be. And drifting is dangerous. And so Jesus rebukes them. Uh, like, a, like a parent, uh, if you're here and a parent, uh, you're a parent, don't you know that sometimes you, you comfort your children and sometimes you have to confront them? You have to instruct them. You have to uh, have conviction in their life. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so he's going to give four rebukes, four rebukes to these churches and to us. And over the next couple hours, I'm going to unpack them. Number one, here's the first rebuke. 
This is a sign of drifting when doctrinal purity replaces personal charity. Now, charity, the Greek word, is agape, which is where we get the word love. When doctrinal purity replaces personal charity, you're drifting. Look here at the church of Ephesus in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Uh, You cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Right here. The church of Ephesus loved their doctrine. Loved their doctrine. They wanted theological purity. They cared deeply about the Word of God, which is a good thing. They hated evil. If you called yourself a teacher or an apostle and you were a false teacher or a false apostle, they would call you out in a minute. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk about them in just a moment. The point is, Ephesus loved truth. But there's a danger there. And here's the danger, Bereans. You can drift away by starting to love the truth of Jesus more than you love Jesus. You begin to love the truth of Jesus more than you love Jesus. In other words, your doctrine becomes your devotion. Your affections are not for Jesus, you just like being right. You love to know that you got a hundred on your theology exam. And when that theological pride begins to set in, it always expresses itself with a lack of love. You say, well, do you mean love for Jesus or love for others? And I say, yes. Because you can't separate the two. Listen to what John, the author of Revelation, says in 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, you're a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother brother. Here's the truth, faith family. I hope you're listening. When you drift from your love for Jesus, you drift in your love from others because God is love. When you're drifting from Him, you drift from other people. So when you're drifting from Jesus because of your theological purity, you end up expressing that in a way that is very unloving. And listen, I'm not going to stand up here and act like that's never been true in my life. Of course it has. And I've seen it happen in a lot of Christians, in a lot of churches. It it, it goes like, at some point in your Christian life, an awakening is going to happen. Light bulb moment. You're going to go to that camp, conference, read that book, hear that speaker, and you're going to see the light. And you're going to up your commitment, and on your way to the front line of following Jesus, here's what you're going to notice. Wait a minute, everybody's not running as fast as I am. They're not as committed as I am. They don't know what I know. They're not in my theological camp. They're not dispensational. They're not charismatic enough. 
They're not reformed enough. They're not fill in the blank. And rather than having compassion for them, you get frustrated with them and you end up theologically, spiritually, or even denominationally arrogant. Being right is more important than being kind. Thinning the herd is more important than expanding the kingdom. And unity, well, that's easy. It's everybody who believes like I do. And what you don't even realize is that you've left your love for Jesus in an effort to be him for everybody else. And it happens so frequently. I got a couple emails. I knew this was happening. I don't want your pity. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. I got a couple emails this week that called me a heretic. I've been called worse by my mother. <laughs> Bless her heart. Can, can we just like get something settled today? A heretic is not someone with a different interpretation. A heretic is someone with a different gospel. Cut it out. And I'm not talking about directing towards me. I'm talking about one another as a faith family. There is room to disagree, people, without being unloving. When you are the kind of Christian, when I'm the kind of Christian, when we're the kind of church that has forgotten personal charity in the name of doctrinal purity, Jesus stands against us. Jesus rebukes us. And this is a gospel problem. What I mean by that is you're not applying the gospel when you have this attitude because your rightness has become your righteousness. You think your righteous standing before God is how correct you are. Brother and sister, there is nothing correct about you that impresses God. The only thing that impresses God is the righteousness of his son that has been given to you by faith. That is the only rightness you have that counts. And I am, I'd be the last person to say that being right about doctrine is a bad thing. Of course not. We do want to be right about doctrine. We want to be serious about the Word of God. But we, we want to understand that the only righteousness is the righteousness of another. It's not my own. And notice what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, that is your light, from its place unless you repent. Jesus says to this kind of Christian, this kind of church, if you don't repent of your theological pride, you'll be removed. Not removed in terms of you're no longer a Christian, removed in the sense, I hope you're listening, you'll no longer be relevant for the mission. Because where there is no love, there is no light. Where there is no love, there is no light. You will be useless for the mission if you do not love. Amen? And some of you are like it. Preach, preacher. 
all that doctrine stuff. Ooh, I don't really like it anyway. He said dispensational. I don't even know what that means. Like, let's just forget all this doctrine. Here's what we're going to do. Lakeville Sanctuary. Everybody grab the hand of the person next to you. We're all going to circle around the sanctuary. Uh, uh, Terry's going to come out and sing us in Kumbaya. We're going to build a little fire in the middle, and we're all going to throw our stick in there, and we're going to put on hippie shirts and give peace a chance. Some of you are actually serious. You're like, okay, let's do it. Well, guess what? Jesus is about to rebuke you. Because the temptation is to swing the other way and be like, yeah, who cares about all that doctrine stuff? But look at the second rebuke. The second rebuke is cultural receptivity that is being received or accepted by your surrounding, by the culture, replaces biblical fidelity, that is faithfulness to the Word. This is the church of Pergamum. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You've some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to be a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, that's a lot there. It's actually actually pretty simple. It, it's the opposite of Ephesus. Right here, faith family. Ephesus is we stand out because of the truth, but they lost love. Pergamum is we blend in in the name of love. We blend into our surroundings. We accept the culture around us. We, we compromise in the name of love, which isn't love. Both of these churches get it wrong. You can't have truth without love. Somebody say amen. amen. And love speaks the truth. Somebody say amen. amen. So when you run to one of these sides and forget the other, you're drifting. Now, what is all this like Balak, Balaam, Old Testament stuff? Here's the simple story. Here's the simple story. Back in the Old Testament, uh, Israel was on their way to the promised land, and they were going to pass through a, a place called Moab. The king was Balak, and Balak was terrified of the nation of Israel because he had heard stories about Yahweh, about God, and what God did to other nations. And so he hires a prophet by the name of Balaam. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to curse Israel, put a curse on them when they come through. And Balaam's going to do this, but God appears to him in a vision. Numbers chapter 22, verse 31. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Balaam goes, whoa, I ain't doing that. I ain't messing with Yahweh, no chance. And so he says, deal's off. Well, Balak gets mad because, dude, you signed the contract. We had a deal. You can't back out of it now. And so Balaam says, I got a better idea. Rather than us cursing them, just seduce them. When Israel's on their way, send out your best women, your best food, and just seduce them in. And guess what? 
you won't have to judge them. God will do it for you. And that's what happened. Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord and the plague came among the congregation. Faith family, look right here. Israel compromised. They blended in with the people of Moab. They compromised doctrinally. They compromised morally. They compromised with idolatry and they blended in. Evidently, the Nicolaitans are doing the same thing to the church at Pergamum. Come on. Do you know what Rome is doing to Christians? They're taking their heads off. You want to see your children grow up, don't you? Just go along with the sacrifices. Just go along with the flow. Just blend in a little bit. A little compromise never hurt. You don't have to deny that there's a hell. Just say that you don't know. When it comes to what the Bible says about marriage and gender and sexuality, just say, you know what, who am I to judge? When the Bible says that Jesus is the only way and there is no other way, just tone down the doctrine and blend in. And when you do, Jesus stands against you. Jesus rebukes you because you have drifted from the truth of the Word of God. Yeah, but my, my roommate said. Yeah, but, but my college professor said. But you know what? The, the majority in the culture believe. I don't care. You haven't been called to blend in. You've been called to stand on the Word of God, whatever the cost. And don't slip into Ephesus where you do it without love. Are you with me, faith family? Is this practical or what? We cannot be like Lou Bolin. You've heard me share of him before. He's the Chinese artist that was famous for immersing himself in any environment. Here he is standing in front of an escalator. I don't know if you can see him here, right there in the middle. Here he is standing in front of uh, uh, shelves at a grocery store. If you see his feet, you can find out where he is. Here he is standing in New York City, okay, just blending into his surroundings. And that's the way, the way it happens is he starts off by sticking out, and then he just keeps painting himself until he blends right in. When you're a Christian or you're a church that does this, you have drifted far away from who you're called to be. This is a gospel problem in terms of the application of the gospel. Here's why. Notice this. Uh, the goal of our salvation is not to be conformed to the world. It's to be conformed to Jesus. And if you're conformed to Jesus, I assure you, you will not be conformed to the world. Are you with me, faith family? Jesus loves you. Jesus stands with you. Jesus is on the side of his bride. But when his bride begins to drift, he's going to wake us up. He says so with Ephesus and Pergamum. Now here's the third rebuke. This scares me. But the other two do as well. But this scares me. Religious activity replaces spiritual vitality. That is, going through the motion religiously replaces being alive 
to God. Look at the church at Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Now stop. I pray, faith family, that this next phrase is not true of Berean. But it terrifies me. Look at it. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's horrifying. I I don't know if I could imagine a worse evaluation of a church. Everything looks good. You got a lot of activity. Things are happening here. But Jesus says, when I look at you, you know what I see? Deadness. A whole bunch of going through the motions and no one's actually alive and engaged. You say, well, where are you getting this from, from the text? Well, a couple of things just quickly. The, the, the phrase, wake up or be alert, in the New Testament is used to refer to those who've lost sight of the mission. The phrase, your works are not complete, is not something that you started but didn't finish, but you're not fulfilling your purpose. And we also know what is something that looks alive but inside is dead. Answer, religious people. Are you with me? What did Jesus say of the Pharisees? You're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look fine on the outside, and if everybody looked, it'd be like, oh my goodness, they've got it together. The truth is, you're dead. That's scary when it comes to a church because of all people, we ought to be alive. Why in the world would we settle for religion and death when we can have life in Christ? Look at this, faith family. Jesus did not resurrect for us to, for us to remain religiously dead. Like, why in the world would you want to be a part of a dead church? Amen? Newsflash, Jesus is alive. So why would we as his people settle for deadness? Why would we just go through the motions of religious activity when we can be alive in him? Oh, may we never be a church that's dead. If you ask the people of Sardis, what do you think about the oh, um, Sardis Baptist Church? Probably wasn't Baptist, but. <laughs> oh, they're great you got to go hear that pastor. He's so loud. (laughs) Oh, and the music, second to none. Oh, that building they just built is so beautiful. they got campuses in Lakeville. They've got other services in the sanctuary. you really got to go check them out. But Jesus says, you're far from me. I see what's going on, and you've drifted away. If that's us, may we repent today and experience life as a church. Amen? Amen. Here's the fourth rebuke. Individual prosperity replaces spiritual dependency. Individual prosperity replaces spiritual dependency. This is a word for American Christians. This is a word for American churches. Because look at Laodicea. Look at what he addresses. Verse 15 of chapter 3. 
I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was a wealthy, pretty obvious from the text, a wealthy, wealthy place. Uh, It had a very successful clothing industry. Uh, There was a black sheep there that they used the wool for a fabric kind of like a denim. Uh, There was a lot of medical institutions there. They had an eye salve, an eye powder that helped with infections. Uh, There were a lot of financial institutions there because it was a place uh, where coming in and out, people would exchange money. In other words, here's the point. They are rich. Filthy rich. So rich that when the city was destroyed in 17 AD by an earthquake, get this, they refused Roman help to rebuild and they rebuilt it themselves. Don't need your money. Don't need your help. We're fine all by ourselves. They were arrogant and prideful because they had prospered. And not only did they not need Rome, evidently they didn't need Jesus. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. By the way, faith family, this is not a verse on evangelism. This is not talking about salvation. You've seen the picture before. Jesus is standing outside the door knocking. The doorknob's on the other side of the door. He's staring through the window like a stalker. You know, it's totally creepy, Jesus here. I see you. And what you're watching on TV, okay, this is not, it's weird, it's weird. It's not what this verse is teaching at all. Get it together, people, okay? Here's what the the verse is teaching. This church has become so self-dependent and prideful, they have shut Jesus out. He's on the outside, After all, look at how much money we have. I'm in good health. I'm well-networked relationally. Look at the level of success. We don't need Jesus because we've got us. That's scary. That's scary. Because a church that becomes this prideful becomes useless. Notice this. The church that is prideful before God is useless to God. You noticed in the text all this hot and cold. You've probably heard it taught that the hot is the people who are really on passion, really passionate, really on fire for God. And the cold is like the cold-hearted, hard-hearted Christian, and the lukewarm is the one on the fence. And Jesus would just almost rather you reject him, cold, than be on the fence. That's not what this is teaching at all. All you need to know is a little bit of history here. You'll understand the point. Uh, uh, This church was in the Lycus River Valley. Areopolis was about six miles away. Colossae's about 10 miles away. There's hot springs here and cold springs here. And the hot springs were used for healing. The cold springs were used for refreshment. And Laodicea got their water through a water system that looked something like this. 
But the, the point is, by the time it got there, it wasn't hot anymore. It wasn't cold anymore. It was lukewarm, meaning hot was useful, cold was useful, lukewarm is useless. And that is what God is saying about a church that's become dependent upon self. This is a gospel problem. Why? Because self-sufficiency is anti-gospel. Newsflash, Christian, you didn't save you. You with me? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It wasn't Jesus in your money. It wasn't Jesus in your success. It wasn't Jesus in your health. It was Jesus alone. Amen? That's how you became a Christian. That's how you live as a Christian. Dependent and desperate for him in everything, regardless of how much money you have. If we're the kind of church that's resting on our budget and resting on our programs and resting on our uh, numbers, Jesus stands against us. What he wants is a people that come in here every weekend and they are desperate for God to do what we cannot do. Amen? Otherwise, we're full of pride. Have you drifted? Have we drifted? Because it's easy to drift when you're facing tribulation like these Christians were. And when you're drifting, you'll either stop loving You'll forsake the truth altogether so that you can be accepted. Uh, you'll just settle into religious safety and go through the motions. Or you'll start depending upon yourself. These are the rebukes Jesus gives to his churches because he wants us to wake up. Now, in the remaining hour of this sermon... Um, in all seriousness, I don't want you to leave today thinking these letters are only about confrontation. That is the bulk of them. There's a lot more that Jesus addresses than he encourages because there's a lot more to be addressed than there is to encourage. But there is some encouragement found here. In other words, a second part of this, and we're going to do this quickly, is Jesus is going to commend the church. He's going to applaud them. We're going to jump to that slide that's got all three of them listed here, and these are the things that he applauds, that he commends. Uh, faithful perseverance. You see the references. There are places where Jesus says, listen, man, some of you are are enduring. Some of you, you're not giving up. Man, I know that things have gotten hard, but you're not quitting. Way to go. Keep going. And keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep preaching the truth. Amen? Because when the heat gets turned up, it's easy to water things down. But Jesus says, no, you keep proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the truth and be faithful in purity. Don't have your garments stained, like he says to one of the churches. Be faithful in holiness. Don't blend into the world, but to stand and be conformed to the image of Christ. Not all of you have drifted. Some of you are standing firm. And for that, I commend. For that, I applaud and say, keep it up church. And then he gives some commands. 
He gives some commands with these letters to the churches, and there are three broad commands that he gives repeatedly over and over. One is, remember who you are. Do not let this world define you. Do not let this culture determine your identity. Remember that you belong to God. You are his. And repent. Always be repenting of your sin, faith family. We have lost a sense of repentance. You've heard me say this before. We think as Christians that repenting is what you do when something's bad or, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, worst case scenario. Repentance is an ongoing part of the Christian life. It's what keeps you from drifting. It's what brings you back to where you're supposed to be. And so if that's theological arrogance, if that's a lack of love, if that's a you've compromised and blended in, whatever it is, everybody look right here. Repent. Today, repent. And receive from Christ. Let Him be your treasure, not anything of this world. Don't drift in your affections and your treasuring of Christ. Receive Him. Keep your eyes on Him. These are the commands that He gives to His church. I close with this. Sir William Edward Perry, he was a, a British admiral famous for his expeditions to the Arctic Circle. Uh, during his lifetime, uh, he attempted on three different occasions to find the North Pole. On one particular trip, uh, they went about as far as they could go on ship, and so they started to walk the rest of the way. Uh, before they took off, they calculated by the stars their location, and then they began to walk northward. After several hours and becoming extremely exhausted, they stopped and while they stopped, they recalculated their position, and much to their dismay, they discovered they were further south than where they started. Here they were the whole time walking north, and now they're further south, and then they discovered what was going on. The sheet of ice that they were walking on was drifting south as they were walking north. And as a result, many of the crew lost their life. Faith family, it is dangerous to drift. It is dangerous to drift. So if you're here as a Christian if we're here as a church and we have drifted, let Jesus, by His grace, confront us today because the last thing we want to be is a Christian or a church that when it comes to the mission of God is never seen again. May it never be. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this word today. It is challenging and it is convicting. And we need uh, a wake-up call because we so easily drift. The, the winds, the waves, the currents of this culture 
uh, toss us back and forth. And I'm thankful, Jesus, that you love us so much and you stand with us so much that you correct us, you convict us, you confront us with the truth. So today, may we respond and repent to whatever it is that you've addressed in our life uh, today, both as a church as well as, as followers of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.